0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Wednesday, February 24th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I am Mike Pesca, and I am here to help. This morning on Joe, Morning Joe himself, said this of Donald Trump. Now when you see him speak, you're actually hearing skeptics like Nicole Wallace saying, it's over. Yet, two days ago, The brain trust at 538 was saying this about Trump's chances. Betfair gives Donald Trump a 50.3% chance of winning the nomination, Harry, buy, sell, or hold. (laughs) Harry said he thought those odds were actually high. He thought it was unlikely that Trump would win the nomination. Claire and Nate thought it was about likely. So what happened? What happened between Monday... 50-50. And it's over this morning. One election happened. It was Nevada. Trump won. He was expected to win. He picked up 14 delegates. Rubio, seven. Cruz, six. So that means that brings his delegate count up to 81. And there are 1,237 needed to get the nomination. Well, Betfair also changed. They say now that Trump is at a 65% chance of winning, but it still wildly exaggerates his chances to say that it's over for the other candidates. So I am going to now help you figure out what happened. 6.5%. 6.5% is the percent of the delegates needed to win that Trump has. Let me put this in a sports context. In a football game, a team last year in the NFL, the median team ran 65 plays on offense. So as a percentage of where Trump is, it's like evaluating a football game after the offense runs four plays. Or a baseball game, one team faces an average of uh, 146 pitches. So we're nine and a half pitches into a baseball game. Yeah, maybe Trump hit a single and a double and a home run, but it's still the first inning. Well, it's not a perfect analogy, because unlike a sporting event, we do have polls that show what is likely to happen in the future, and Trump is leading everywhere. So that means, yeah, I'm going to say if that doesn't change, he will certainly be the nominee, but it could change. And the votes on Super Tuesday, that SEC primary on March 1st, are proportional. So even though the media will tell you there are so many delegates at stake and it's a huge day and Trump can increase his lead, he's not going to be able to lock it up on Super Tuesday, not according to delegates. At this rate, he'll win over 200 delegates. He may be sitting on March 2nd at 350 delegates and Rubio could be at 100, but then... The next week, Florida is winner-take-all, 99 delegates. Rubio wins that, his home state, he's right back in it. Of course, the same day, Ohio's winner take all. Trump wins that, Rubio's not back in it. But John Kasich is out there. Maybe he won't get out of the race. Maybe he'll win Ohio. Maybe he will get out of the race. Tell his voters to vote for Rubio. Anyway, all of this adds up to we are so far from the finish line that it's ridiculous to say it's over. Let me help you by saying, yes, Trump is likely, but there are a lot of ways for Rubio to win. I don't think anyone else, but I think Rubio could win the nomination. Like I say, it ain't over until the fat lady sings and then Donald Trump punches her in the face. On the show, it is a whale of a spiel. But first, Maria Konnikova is here to talk about Sigmund Freud and his contribution to beards, Viennese accents, cigars, horses, and oh yeah, psychology. Paging Dr. Freud is no longer a funny joke, but actually it's an interesting topic because psychoanalysis and the Freudian way of looking at the brain has come into criticism. I mean, insofar as uh, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that shows it works, yet it is the fodder of Woody Allen movies and Richard Lewis routines. I mean, let's give Freud credit. He was a great brain who had thoughts in his brain about other people's brains. But now, a hundred or so years on, maybe we could actually determine if his ideas about curing a brain work. Joining me now is Maria Konnikova. She is the author of The Confidence Game, which has to deal with certain types of brains, Machiavellian brains, the brains of the con man. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. So Freud is associated with psychoanalysis. He's the father of psychoanalysis. Did he really lay it out? Did he really say, do it this way, that way, the other way? Was this how he made his name by inventing psychoanalysis, or is this more an outgrowth of some of his other theories that, uh... and then he said, okay, well, here's a way of treating my theories about dreams and my theories about jokes and my theories about cigars?
0: Well, there are, I think there are a few elements to that. The first is that, yes, he actually did practice psychoanalysis, and many of the practices that we use Today, like the couch, the couch, for instance, lying on the couch, that comes directly from him because he took lots of case notes. I mean, his case studies—if you haven't read them—they're fascinating reading. Also, kind of, I mean, eyebrow-raising. I remember. He, I remember
1: there were there was a, a guy named Little Hans.
0: Yeah, he's a horse guy. Little Hans yes, is the horse guy. Yes, the horse guy. <laughs> he thought he was a horse. No, no. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> what was his deal? Remind me. <laughs> um, so, so he um, was. Sc- this was the interpretation yeah. that he was scared once by a horse and carriage, yeah. and then he started having bad horse dreams. Horse and this penis. was all about castration anxiety and and penis um, penis things because horses have really big penises. Yeah,
1: the horse penis connection. Um, and, Here we go again. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so and so little Hans had had a, this massive fear of horses, right. but in identifying the latent phobia, which was by the way what psychoanalysis is all about. It's about figuring out what you're repressing Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out a way to
1: deal with it. And the way to get that out is to talk, 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 be on a couch. Exactly. Eventually, the psychiatrist says, aha, it's really about this.
0: Right. And so there are different approaches to psychoanalysis. That was a lot of the Freudian approach. In general, I think a really good way to call it, and this is what a lot of people use, is just talk therapy. Talk therapy. But
1: when we say talk therapy now, it doesn't have to mean psychoanalysis? No, it doesn't have to mean psychoanalysis. Can it mean therapies that are really radically different? or th- So here's the thing. Yeah.
0: No therapies are that radically different in one very specific approach, which is that unless you're a psychiatrist who prescribes medication, and a lot of psychiatrists spend five minutes with their patients, there's really no... Not a lot of talking or analysis involved. You just kind of figure out what's going on, prescribe the the pills. Exactly. With that exception, there's always talking involved. Mm -hmm. So cognitive behavioral therapy, which you and I have talked about before, psychoanalysis, different other types of psychotherapies, they all include some form of talking. The difference is what is your approach, Mm -hmm. what is your relationship with your patient, and kind of how do you how do you approach the talk? Are you actually training in different thought techniques, which is cognitive behavioral therapy? Right.
1: Analysis not doing No, it's, it's sort of like detective work or finding out the patient's secret, right?
0: For the most part, yes. Yeah. And Freud had a lot of theories. <laughs> he he didn't just do psychoanalysis, but at the root of his psychoanalytic theories is this concept of the fact that our brain represses things that we live, and society forces this repression. So there's this big force out there, society, and it doesn't let us voice and say the thoughts that we want to voice and say. And by the way, at the time that he was doing this, a lot of this made sense. He treated women successfully for neuroses. Think about what women... We're doing at the time and how, mu- how, how many, much repression actually how many was of going on. Were exactly, yes. exactly. So, if you put Freud back in his context, you can actually kind of start seeing where some of that repression idea yeah. comes
1: from. I mean, just like any whiff of talking about homosexuality was so. Exactly, verboten. exactly. Yeah, he was a forward yeah, thinking person. Yeah, he absolutely, he absolutely
0: was. Yeah. Now, he went way overboard in saying, actually, all of this has to do with sexuality yeah. and sexual development. And that. I think is where he went really wrong because then he's what he started doing was trying to not just figure out you know what's the problem how do we diagnose it but how does this deal with you know castration anxiety mm-hmm. or the fact that you're still overly attached to your mother or that you have an Oedipal complex or, or any of these electro complex right. any any of these different things and so I think that's where he just Veered off. So, Um, so how do
1: we study now if psychotherapy works? We have to identify therapists who identify as psychotherapists. Won't a lot of them say, "I'm a psychotherapist, but I also do these modern techniques"?
0: Right. So, there is a very specific way we can identify psychoanalysts. Yeah. Psychoanalysts have to have several years of training. They've, there are special psychoanalytical institutes. They mm-hmm. have a degree in psychoanalysis. We can identify psychiatrists. They're MDs. Yes. They're actual doctors. Everything else in the middle is really iffy okay. because it can be anything from a social worker who thinks of himself or herself as a psychologist, a psychologist with a PsyD, which is the clinical version of the PHD
1: certain drum circles perhaps
0: uh, yes yeah. yes absolutely so there is a lot of kind of a lot of weirdness in there yeah you know
1: why it's because of sexual repression <laughs> absolutely That's
0: my all goes back to little hans yeah <laughs> <laughs> so so um, there's actually very little good work done because therapists will tell you, well, first of all, we can't do a randomized control study because these are people with problems. And there is some truth to that. Yeah. So you have a lot of different variables. One, you have to follow people for a long time, and it's hard to assign them randomly and say, you know, you you're going to, to get... You have
1: to follow patients for a right, long time. Right, yes. Saying, yeah.
0: You're going to get psychoanalysis. You're going to get cognitive behavioral therapy. You're yeah. going to get something people else. People
1: want the therapy they want. Exactly. they choose their... Exactly.
0: Theory. So yeah. that's, first of all, that's hard. Secondly, as you were saying, or as you you were implying, every therapist is a little different. So Mm -hmm. we can't figure out, you know, it's not like we can give you a script and say that, okay, all the psychoanalysts are going to use this psychoanalytical script. You have the tools, but then it differs from person to person. And you actually see that different doctors are more effective than than others there's variation there then we have variation among patients so first there is there is work on specific disorders so for instance anxiety disorder there's been work done with that and psychoanalysis but what if you're someone who doesn't even have any sort of real disorder you just like going to therapy Um, you haven't been studied because the only people who've really been studied are the people with some sort of diagnosis
1: so what have we found out with those people with some sort of diagnosis
0: Very little. Um, We found out that there are studies that show that psychoanalysis is great, that cognitive behavioral therapy is great, that there's no difference between the two, that one is better, that the other one is better. I'm not making a lot of sense here, and that's because the data is really really iffy because there are so many different variables and it's so hard to compare. And there's one thing we do know, talking to people helps, period. Talking through your problems helps. And a lot of these studies, by the way, there's no control group. It just shows a before and after. Did you improve? Well, if you improved, that might just be, you might've also improved if you'd talked to your spouse, for instance, and had someone who just listened to you and were, were able to work through problems like that
1: what is psychoanalysis still very popular yes. Has it waned or no it still it's still is very still popular it's still quite
0: popular to- and other talk therapies are incredibly popular. Because I know,
1: I I get most of my knowledge of this from the New Yorker, and from the New Yorker, I know that there are a lot of people on desert islands with one palm tree, and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of psychoanalysis going on with a guy on a couch.
0: Yes, and people still use couches. Some people people don't, but people do use couches and still have you close your eyes. And there are different, so it's very funny, I was reading one kind of article that looked at the different approaches, and they put it on a spectrum. Uh-huh. So how much are you, how supportive are you, and how much do you deal with repression? <laughs> so you can actually go more or less into the repression Well, issues. what about
1: repression? Have they studied mm-hmm. repression? Is repression bullshit?
0: Um, repression is not bullshit. Ah,
1: repression there is repression.
0: There is repression. There is repression. It's not all about sex. Mm-hmm. But we do repress certain things. All you have to do is look at, you know, PTSD Repressed memories. I mean, these things do play out. It's also very dangerous ground, though. Yeah, I think that sometimes we
1: say things are repressed when they're they're not. They're not. They're planted. They're fanciful tales. Exactly.
0: And psychoanalysis went through a really dark period a few decades ago when people were... Repress
1: repressed memories, Repressed memories,
0: exactly. And it ended up that a lot of these... I saw Goody Baker
1: with the devil. <laughs> exactly. I saw Goody Two-Shoes with the devil. Yeah. Exactly. Pretty much a witch trial. Exactly.
0: It, that's exactly what it was. And yes. it's so easy for that line to be crossed because I don't think oftentimes the therapists don't realize how much they lead their patients. That happens much more frequently with psychoanalysis than it does in other ter- types All
1: right. of therapy. so I have two questions. Here's the first. Psychoanalysis. Is that bullshit?
0: We don't know. We think a lot of parts of it are bullshit, but talking to people is good and having someone to talk to and someone who will help you along. And there are probably some good psychoanalysts out there, but we have no data that shows definitively mm-hmm. that psychoanalysis in and of itself is going to be helpful to the average healthy person.
1: Okay. my follow-up is, what do you think about that?
0: Well, is there a couch? I mean, <laughs> I, I need a couch and I need to lie back down so that I could actually... Tell me so what
1: you I think about actually... psychoanalysis being bullshit.
0: Personally, yeah. I think it's pretty, pretty bullshitty. You do? I and why do. do. you
1: why do you think that?
0: Because I'm probably repressing a childhood memory. Did
1: your mom or dad believe in psychoanalysis? Probably. They did? Probably, uh-huh. yes.
0: And they probably forced me to go to a psychoanalyst against my will. Uh-huh. This was probably in the Soviet Union, so there right. was probably something very strange going on, too. Um, maybe I was part of a government experiment. Well, whenever I'm you smell sure.
1: borscht, do you think of Freud.
0: Oh my God! How how did you know that? This is a breakthrough!
1: <laughs> All right, our time's up. It's been fifty minutes. Maria Kanakova is the author of The Confidence Game, and she knows the truth about herself, which is the most important thing. That'll be seven hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> Thank you, Maria.
0: Here you go, Mike. Thanks. <laughs>
1: And now the spiel, Whales in the News.
0: Whales in the News.
1: Whales in the News. We're
0: going to breach the topic of Whales in the News.
1: Whales in the News. Whales in the News. Our first whale in the news is this guy. I think no one really is giving Tokyo... Sekwale much of a chance he may drop out before Friday's vote. Wait, what did Bob Lee say there on the USA Today podcast for the win? Sounded like Tokyo Sexuale. Here's Zai TV saying the same name. Tokyo Sexuale has thrown his support behind the president, saying he's no racist. Sekwale. Sexuale. Sexuale? Tokyo Sexuale? It helps if you know how this FIFA official spells his name. T-O-K-Y-O, so indeed Tokyo, named after the city. Last name, S-E-X-W-A-L-E, Sex Whale. Once won a name of the year competition as Tokyo Sex whale. Sure, he pronounces it Seswale or Sekwale, but we all know about the Tokyo Sex Whale. In other whale news, whales in the news. Whales in the news. Yeah, I needed that one. Wall Street Journal headline, London Whale Breaks Silence. And we know what it sounds like when a whale breaks silence. So that's what we think it sounds like when whales break their silence, but not in this case. We're talking about Bruno Ixel, the London whale, the trader for J.P. Morgan, who lost billions of dollars a few years ago. He came out with his first statement, and that statement was, It wasn't my fault! I mean, he's French. Maybe he has a French accent. But I was instructed repeatedly to take those risks, and that's why I lost billions. And by the way, billions? At the time, it caused a huge panic, and J.P. Morgan's stock was pummeled because he lost $2 billion dollars. Oh, it turns out he actually lost six billion dollars. But this is one of those stories where kind of confirms your worldview. The people at j p Morgan Jamie Diamond says actually, it shows that we could withstand a loss like that. We took a loss of six billion dollars, but we also made seventeen twenty billion dollars. So it's fine. We weren't over leveraged. But they hauled J P. Morgan and Diamond before Congress. He got a little contrite and two Others who look at this, they say this shows that the banks are taking way too big a risk. And also the things that the London Whale did, Bruno Ixil, the things that he did included changing the formula about risk, making a mistake in the spreadsheet that allowed him to take on more risk, and just to be a whiny complainer. Also, his name anagrams perfectly, like way too easily, from Bruno Ixil to Brew. no skill. For all we know now, he's changed his name to Bruno Somskill and is either working in the financial industry or in SeaWorld, which brings me to my last story of Whales in the News. Whales in the News. Wh- In the news, scientists studying bowhead whales off the coast of Alaska have discovered several individuals who are 200 years old, and one may be at least 250 years old. How they found this was really quite interesting. There were harpoon tips made of ivory and stone in the blubber of freshly killed whales, and they did some carbon dating on those, and they found that the harpoons were 172 to 211 years old. Maybe some of these hunters were using 30-year-old harpoons? I don't think so. I think you want to use the latest in harpoon technology when taking out a whale 200 year old whales plus fairly accurate underwater whale recording like this whispery whale woman who was featured recently on npr
0: from the bottom of the sea the underside of the wave every sound all the whales are listening they're listening they've memorized this song
1: so, you know what this all adds up to. It's not too long before the gist starts booking whale interviews. The 200-year-old whale. Okay, okay. Hello, welcome to the gist, Mr. Whale. Now, that is a stupid thing to say. Would I call you Mr. Legs? Mr. Tiny, insignificant mammal? Our naming conventions are not like yours. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So, what do the other whales call you? <coughs> It means, roughly, the one with the longer left fin. The guys, they tease me, they think they're funny. It's whale humor. Whale humor, huh? Yeah, let me tell you a whale joke, okay. Two krill are swimming in the ocean. A giant whale comes to eat them. The first krill turns to the second krill and says, oh my god, a talking krill. <laughs> it's cause krill don't talk. <laughs> well, for a while there, we thought whales didn't talk. No, you didn't. You always knew they talked, but what you did is you played our conversations in your yoga classes or your massage parlors. How how sick, how sick must you be trying to relax while well, in the background one whale is saying to another whale, I want a divorce. I've been having an affair with the pod leader. It's terrible. Well, listen, I'm sorry about all that. I can assure you we humans didn't know, but I wanted to ask you, you're pretty old. Did you personally know Herman Melville? Melville? Oh, sure call me overrated, if you ask me. Why? Why why do you say that? He's a weird guy, he's always snooping around, he's trying to insinuate himself, like he's one of the guys. You could tell this guy was up to something. And also, I did not care for the book. Oh, Moby Dick. We call it Ahab the asshole. Again, example of whale humor. Of course, the whale translation is probably exaggerated in parts, owing, of course, to the fact that the ink washes off pretty easily. To tell you the truth, we just look at Melville like any other white man stealing the Blue Whales culture. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know about that. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, you played that music, right? Do we get any krill for that? We don't. Moby Dick, this new Ron Howard movie? Are we getting a taste? We're not. Jonah, for you, a biblical text. I'm sorry. To us, it's just an example of how rent laws are written to favor the tenant. It is ridiculous. And you microscopic land mammals and your privilege. I mean, Scrimshaw, what the hell is that? You call it an art form, we call it a holocaust. Listen, I, up until a couple days ago, I didn't even know you could talk. Well, I didn't know you could swallow your own weight in water. Oh, you can't. What did I expect? A blue whale's heart can fit a 100 people. How many whales can a person's heart fit? I think this interview shows the answer is not a one. Not a one. Thank you, the one with the longer left flipper. Thank you, sir. It was, uh, I guess you could say it was the krill of a lifetime. You don't get to make that joke. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has rethought everything she ever thought about Beluga. Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, will never watch Free Willy the same way again or at all. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is wondering about a whale cast. No, not whale sounds for humans, but a podcast for whales... But the question, I guess, is are whales paying too much for razors or postage? The gist, true fact, Tokyo Sexuale says he is afraid of Googling his own name. But if he Googled the name of his friend and mentor, Sepp Blatter, I think those Google results would be really disturbing. Oomperu Peru, and thanks for listening.